I think people are quite obsessed with the differences between Web 2 and Web 3. Um, so everybody's like, you know, what's different about Web 3? Like, why is it completely different to Web 2? And to be honest, it's not completely different, right? And I think this is almost like, um, this is like a, a cloud that is, you know, a, a mystery that is over Web3. But at the end of the day, like marketing is marketing. Um, and if you need to launch a project, then basically you need to get out there. You need to find like, who is, who's your key audience? Um, who are the different kinds of stakeholders you need to get involved? And how are you going to get them interested in your product um, or whatever else you might be doing? Right? And that applies to like boomer marketing from like the sixties with like Ogilvy, you know, doing like ads for soap as much as it applies to apps um, from the last, from say web two, as it applies to like uh, crypto projects now. Hi everyone. This is growing web three, a podcast that uncovers the growth stories behind the most successful crypto, DeFi, DAO, NFT, metaverse, and play to earn ecosystems. I'm your host, James RT, and each week I'll be sitting down with founders and experts on Web3 to pick their brains and learn about their growth stories. We'll discuss strategies and tactics to understand how they've grown Web3's billion dollar protocols and communities. So whether you're in the midst of your own growth story or just getting started, this show is for you. Subscribe and join us each week as we discuss growing Web3. Growing Web3 is brought to you by Hype Partners, the leading community management and marketing agency for Web3 organizations. Hype is a global agency of 120 marketers committed to supercharging Web3 ecosystems. Go to www.hype.partners to learn more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Growing Web3. I'm super excited to have with me today, Jake Stott, the founder of Hype, prolific angel investor and successful SaaS entrepreneur. So I've been lucky enough to work with Jake for the last two years, um, growing hype. And I thought it'd be awesome to get him on the show as he's going to be a co-host and start hosting some episodes of Growing Web 3 over the coming weeks and months. So super excited for that. So Jake, I thought maybe we could kick off by learning a little bit about your journey into Web 3. Uh, yeah, thanks, James. Uh, yeah, obviously, uh, a bit of a strange one, uh, you interviewing me for the podcast, but I'm excited to, you know, be doing some more hosting over the coming months, uh, getting some great guests on. So uh, thanks for having me on, I guess, uh, for this. Um, but yeah, like, how did I get into Web3? So my background really is, uh, I've been in the space since 2017, like a lot of people of the last era of crypto and uh, yeah, I got into the space because basically I'd missed out um, on being involved in Ethereum in the early days. So back in late 2014, um, I went to some of the early Ethereum meetups in Berlin, invited by a friend, told me I had to go and see this thing. Um, really impressive, like super smart people. Um, but the main thing is I just didn't really understand it at the time. So completely skipped uh, a few years and didn't decide to get more involved and didn't really understand what was actually happening. Um, and then in 2017, a friend of mine uh, sent me a message and I'd actually posted the Ethereum white paper on Facebook uh, in 2014. Um, don't really know why, but um, yeah, at some point I'd done that. He found that Facebook post 
reached out to me in 2017 and then I realized like how much I'd really missed uh, and how much, I guess, how much money I hadn't made from investing in the Ethereum ICO. Um, so the next, you know, within days, uh, I was in, I was in Athens at the time and then like three days later, I was back in Berlin and, you know, decided to like get down, jump into the rabbit hole basically. And that was the beginning. Um, at the time I was running a marketing agency, working with e-commerce companies. So um, doing all sorts of digital marketing. Um, and then throughout the year of 2017 was spending 12 hours a day, at least, you know, for, it was, it was very intense, you know, getting involved in ICOs, kind of like, you know, investing in crypto, like being a true retail um, investor in the space, and then just became quite obsessed and realized there was, um, you know, a big opportunity to do, to use the skills I had and to work with crypto companies which are now Web3 companies, I guess, um, instead of working with e-commerce companies. You know, it was more fun. Um, there wasn't that many people doing it. There were some like agencies and some people doing it, but generally it just felt like a whole new area to explore. Um, and then that was, yeah, that was the beginning really. So since December, like beginning of December, 2017, I started taking on my first crypto clients um, for marketing. And then over the last five and a half years, you know, we've worked with 230 plus companies in the space. So yeah, and kind of unexpected. Amazing. Yeah. 230 is an insane number of projects and companies to work with. So from working with all of those, yeah, crypto, I guess now Web3 startups, um, organizations, what do you think are the key things that makes launching a Web3 startup different from launching a Web2 startup? Yeah, so, you know, I think one thing I would say is that, like, comes up a lot is, like, you know, people ask this on Twitter all the time. You know, a lot of people, or when I've been on other podcasts, I think people are quite obsessed with the differences between Web2 and Web3. Um, so everybody's like, you know, what's different about Web3? Like, why is it completely different to Web2? And to be honest, it's not completely different, right? And I think this is almost like, um, this is like a, a cloud that is, you know, a, a mystery that is over Web3. But at the end of the day, like marketing is marketing. Um, and if you need to launch a project, then basically you need to get out there. You need to find like, who is, who's your key audience? Um, who are the different kinds of stakeholders you need to get involved and how are you going to get them interested in your product um, or whatever else you might be doing, right? And that applies to like boomer marketing from like the 60s with like Ogilvy, you know, doing like ads for soap as much as it applies to apps um, from the last, from the say Web2, as it applies to like uh, crypto projects now. Um, so, I, you know, I think marketing is marketing. Um, I think what you have to think about in terms of launching a web three company over launching a web two company is one key thing is that you are, especially if you have a token anyway, you are a public company from very, very early in your life. Um, and I think the average sort of Silicon Valley web two founder has, um, essentially, uh, you know, quite a lot of privilege that they get to remain a private company. They get to fail. They get to do make loads of mistakes behind the scenes. Whereas as a crypto company, um, you are public from day one um, or near enough. Um, and that is a huge difference that not everybody's prepared for. 
So I think that's the number one thing, like knowing you are a public company um, and you, you have to behave more like a company listed on the stock market than you do a Silicon Valley startup often. That's one thing. Um, the second key thing is the, if you have a token, which, you know, there's Web3 companies that don't, but let's assume most of them do, then you're going to need a community. And if your token or if your general ecosystem around that token is not interesting to normal people at all or has no purpose, then there's a high chance that basically your project's not going to be successful. So there are examples right now, you know, there's examples of meme tokens that in a way don't really have any use either, but they manage to capture some mind share, you know, but there's also examples of very corporate blockchains that, you know, we've seen or often niche use cases like that, that, that haven't managed to build a community because that's not really the point you know, they see it, um, that they see their token as more of too fixed on like the token economics rather than whether the community cares about it. So I think that's the second thing really is that you need to be thinking about like, you know, where is your, what are you building and is it interesting for a specific community and can you build a community around it? So that's the second thing. Um, and then I think the third point is really looking at what, what are you actually trying to build really? So um, if you look at a typical Web2 company, like the only real mechanism, you know, the thing of interest is profit. All right, so you need to make more profit, you need to make more recurring revenue, and hopefully over your lifetime of going through seed, series A and beyond, IPO maybe, or, or a sale, you are making more profit um, and you are increasing, you know, recurring revenue or something like that. So that's a typical Web2 company. Web3 companies don't really have that. I mean, some of them, some of them do make fees and, you know, so if they're a DEX or if they're a layer one, like sometimes, um, you know, they have, they make money from gas fees or they make money from transaction fees or from users. But there's also a lot of projects in the space that don't really have that when you really look at it. I mean, there's a lot of tokens that if you're looking at it from a purely fundamental, you know, Warren Buffett kind of mindset that they don't make sense at all but they still happen to be multi-billion dollar companies. So the question is why and how? And I think there are lots of other mechanisms at play that sort of drive value in this space. You know, on the far end, meme tokens being one of that, uh, one of those things really that they don't really make any sense, but like if they capture mindshare, then they have value. Um, so I think that's another, that's like a third thing about launching a company. Like it doesn't have to be super profitable to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. Like you have to have demand from somewhere. And for some reason, there's a lot of demand for memes, just in general. People love memes, people love meme coins, and there's demand for that in the market. So yeah, and it's funny that there's more demand for some meme coins than, you know, projects you would think uh, are maybe or maybe have more utility. But yeah, yeah and, and I think another that's the space. Another example of that is also, you know, in some ways looking at NFTs. Um, so, you know, a lot of NFT projects launched and they were like, we're going to have all this utility. And even now, like one or two years later, a lot of them don't necessarily have all the utility they promised, but they still have value. They still have a strong community. They're still doing things. Um, 
So I think it's just kind of a different mindset is that, you know, if one of my dad's friends asked me like, yeah, but why is, why is this worth anything? And sometimes it's not, but you know, and sometimes these projects die off, but a lot of them are going to live for the next decade. And if you only think about it in sort of traditional business mindsets, then basically you're not going to get it and you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunity. So I think, um, yeah, the, the old rules have been kind of thrown out and there are kind of, you know, if you can capture mind share, if you can build an audience and a community and make people feel like they're part of something, you can drive value. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. So switching up slightly, I wanted to talk about Incubate, which is a new initiative launched um, alongside Hype. And Incubate is a Web3 incubator focused on go-to-market strategies. I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about Incubate and how it can support founders. Yeah, cool. So we've just launched Incubate a few months ago. Um, it's been, I'd say, in the works for close to a year, really, in terms of you know planning and uh, you know thinking about like what our offering is in the market. So what we've seen over the last you know, few years, probably since sort of 2019 onwards, is there's a lot of accelerators, like Web3 accelerators, it generally accelerators as well. So I'll do also very quickly, what's the difference between a venture studio, an incubator and an accelerator? Because they're three different terms that are thrown around a lot. So venture studio is generally speaking, it's a small you know, group or collective of people and they are building their own ideas. So they might have an idea for a product, they build it and then they spin it out as a separate company. And you maybe as a venture studio can do a small amount. You can do maybe a few a year or whatever it might be, but you're creating new companies and it's your idea and everything like that. So that's a venture studio. Um, an accelerator is the other end of the spectrum. So an accelerator is companies that already exist, startups already exist. They come to you and you provide um, sort of a low touch kind of service. So it might be um, mentoring, it might be specific um, areas that you focus on. And then at the end, you know, your goal is to help improve the company as an accelerator and then do a demo day and do some introductions to investors. Um, but accelerators, they are kind of essentially like VCs, you know, they're looking to do 20 or 50 uh, projects in a cohort why um, Combinator is essentially this, but the most successful. And then the goal is that, you know, some of them or some of them will be successful and some will fail. That's the nature of just BC investing. Right? So that's the two ends of the spectrum. And in the middle is an incubator. And an incubator is, you know, finding either external founders or external projects that already exist. Um, and then really working with them very closely. So doing a smaller amount than an accelerator, but maybe a bigger amount than a venture studio and working with them closely and you know whatever you might focus on it might be everything uh, and bringing them to market and giving them a higher chance of success so as an incubator you want to have a higher hit ratio of success than an accelerator otherwise you're probably failing um, but at the same time you might not have as high hit ratio as a venture studio it's hard to, hard to say but it's somewhere in the middle all right so why are we doing incubate um well, what we've seen is there aren't that many incubators within Web3 anyway. There's actually quite a lot of venture studios, like some really good ones like Thesis. Um, but then, uh, you know, or VenturePunk is another great one. Um, but then the other end, there's a lot of accelerators as well. So you have, you know, Outlier Ventures, 
You have Beacon, which is sort of a new uh, one related to some of the early Polygon team. Um, you have Longhash, and there's probably quite a few others. You know, you could say A16Z also have their own to some extent. And that's, the, you know, the f let's just call it factory production. You know, it's the high volume. And then there's the, you know, the very low volume of Venture Studio. And in the middle, where we want to be is, you know, the, the incubation side. So our experience over the last few years is that there are not many places for founders to go and get very, uh, you know, deep, um, like a, a deep level of service. Um, and for, you know, founders to work with people very, very closely. Like VCs sometimes will do that um, if they're invested enough. But most of the time, you know, they're not. They're, they're mostly there to provide capital. Accelerators as well, you know, they will have some successful projects. But if you are not the best project in the cohort, then you might get left behind to some extent. Um, so sometimes you're missing something there. And really, that's not really what an accelerator is aiming to do. They're aiming to do as many projects as possible rather than work closely with a handful. So we've seen these problems from, you know, working with different accelerators and different uh, eco ecosystems in the space. And that's been, you know, a, a huge area where we think that we could, you know, improve. So I think that's the first part. The second part is um, the ecosystems themselves. So like, you know, Web3 is obviously split into like, Bitcoin and Ethereum at the top, mostly sort of, you know, Ethereum is, is for building other dApps on top of. And then now we have, we've got a list of, was it 70 plus ecosystems that most people have maybe heard of and all of them need to grow. So all of them need um, dApps building there. Um, and the way I think of these is like in the, the mobile phone market, you have operating systems. So, you know, a blockchain is like an operating system to some extent, you know, you have iOS and you have Android. And in the mobile world, they're the only two real operating systems. Um, and you have the Google Play Store and, the, and is it the iTunes Store, the Apple Store. And they're really the only two places where you can build if it's a mobile phone app. And in the Web3 space, you now have 70 blockchains, or there's probably more, but you have a lot of blockchains. So all of these are their own competing app stores to some extent. And all of them need to find dApps. Um, and... Yeah, many of these are sort of like a growing stage or an early stage. So they need accelerators, they need incubators to sort of help bring these teams to market. So for some of the bigger blockchains, um, to name like our first partner, Polygon, um, they have thousands of dApps. Um, and, you know, they have a lot of people building in their ecosystem. But in our opinion, what they need to do next is find, you know, those 10 killer dApps. Um, they need to find the 10 dApps that are each can have a million users or more that are comparable to like, you know, the, the top, top downloaded apps on, um, you know, the app store. And that's really where we want to come in. So if you're trying to incubate 50 projects at a time or accelerate 50 projects at a time, um, it's going to be hard to find those big winners or really work closely with them to help it happen. We're going to be working with eight projects at a time and we'll be working closely with the ecosystems um, to find out like what are the best projects and then really help them get to that you know, super dap type stage. So that's what we're doing with Incubate. Um, and yeah, we just announced our first cohort with Polygon um, and working with projects within that ecosystem. And we'll have more to come, you know, the next few months um, as we kind of build everything up. Epic. Very, very cool. So I've, yeah, we did a few like office hours with the group of founders early on in 
uh, the incubate community, which has been growing really fast, which is awesome to see. And there were lots of common questions. I thought we could kind of chat about on this, this, uh, this recording, yeah, cool. um, as lots of founders will be listening in. So, um, as we already touched on community and the importance of it, if a founder of a new project wants to start to grow their community or like, how should they go about kicking off growing a community around their project? What are like the first steps and what advice do you have? Yeah. So always the most difficult uh, part, really like the beginning of a community. Um, and yeah, honestly, the, there's a few ways to go about it. Right? But I think the key thing that I've said to a lot of founders within Incubate already is you need to find those multipliers. Right? So if you've got no community, it's a bit like when you've, uh, if you look at um, a social media profile as well. You can post all day long on Twitter. You could post 100 tweets a day for the next month and you're probably not going to grow that much unless you manage to come up with something either by chance goes viral um, or you're kind of talking about a topic that everybody's talking about right now. So there are different ways to do it. But if you're just just tweeting away, you could do thousands of tweets and, and not make, make much progress. So same with the community. If you open a community and the team is just talking in there and there's a few, uh, you know, your friends are in there, it doesn't, um, especially because it doesn't have um, an external outlet, you know, like Twitter, there are millions of people there on that platform. So people might come across you. With the community, it's a closed, siloed um, space. So you could all be chatting there 24 hours a day and like, doesn't mean anyone else is ever going to find it. So that's a kind of key problem that we find in the beginning. So you need to find these multipliers. Who are the people? Like, what is your community for? And who are the people who might want to be there? Um, so if it is a community for, <clears throat> let's just pick a random thing, uh, you know, within the space. So it could be like crypto traders within Turkey, right? So it's, it's a specific Turkish language um, crypto trader group, right? So if you start that on day one, who's going to join it, right? So you've got to think about who has access to that audience, right? So where do I find crypto traders within Turkey? Right, so thinking out loud, like some of the areas you might look at, um, who are the biggest crypto exchanges in Turkey? Probably most of those traders chain, uh, trade there. Like, can you reach out to people working there? Can you partner with them, for example? Like, that's a multiplier um, because they have access to the audience that you want. Right, same might be crypto traders on Twitter. You know, who speak in uh, Turkish. You know, they also are potential multipliers. You know, maybe they've got an audience of those people. So when you want to start a community, you have to think about like who you're trying to bring in. You know, if it's art collectors, if it's traders, if it's uh, I don't know, photographers, whatever it could be, any type of community, crypto or not, um, you need to find those multipliers who do have that audience already and try and find a way to work with them, right? And in, in some cases, it might be paid, right? Like sometimes you have influencers, it works out. But most of the time, you don't really need to do that in the beginning, I think. You've just got to find ways to leverage their audience. And then that should give you your first, um, you know, 1,000 community members maybe. And then from there, you know, you kind of build build from that and find out like where the most successful you know, paths are. Awesome. Super great advice. Super great advice. I'm also, yeah, I'm always telling founders that you shouldn't 
try and like the goal shouldn't be to have a large community right it's like it's yeah it's a good uh comparison with like a social media profile you shouldn't aim to have a really big social media profile like at the end of the day it's just a vanity metric like you should aim to have a really engaged community just like a really engaged social media profile is more important than a huge one um and I think that's kind of tough for founders because they kind of compare themselves to other communities and we go, oh my God, this person, you know, this team has far, like 50,000 people in their Discord. And it's like, yeah, but go into their Discord and look at like, is the engagement good? Um, is the quality of the conversation high? And with these, you know, huge Discords, um, often the case is that the quality of engagement and conversation uh, is not that high. And so it's much better to have discord with under a thousand people or a few hundred people that has really good engagement um and where people are like yeah active and happy and you know everyone's really connecting versus just a lot of kind of people in there for the wrong reasons um i think one question which was asked to me was like how active should founders be in the their community like early on so yeah do you have an answer for that yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on that as well, it's not, you know, I don't think the community should always stay small. Like, I think, you know, you do get to a point if you are like one of the bigger projects where you are just naturally going to have maybe tens of thousands of people, maybe even millions of people in your community. But yeah, like that shouldn't be the goal in the beginning. Um, and if you can keep a smallish community that is very active, for at least the first few months that you're kind of building, you're going to learn a lot, right? And I'm in so many discords and telegram groups um, that I've been in for a long time, and I'm not active in most of them, um, is a reality. Like I'm technically in the community as one of the numbers, but I'm not active. It's because, you know, there might be 10,000 people in there or 50,000 people in there. And, you know, I don't know anybody. I am just a complete an anonymous person in a, in a group of 50,000. If you're in a channel of 100 people and you know a good amount of them are active, then you're maybe more incentivized to be active. Um, and the, the communities I'm most active in are more that kind of size, you know, in the hundreds. Um, so I think that's a very important thing because you do need those core fans. And, and you find that um, common problem with like early stage projects is they, they go for this 10,000 or 50,000 uh, size group and then nobody feels like they're really part of anything. Uh, and in the end, you know, people start to fade away and you do haven't built this core community of maybe several hundred or a thousand people. So I think that's, um, yeah, that's really a, an important uh, point that you make there. What was the other thing you said, actually? What was the question you asked? How involved should founders be? So, I mean, at the beginning, I'll give you my answer and then you can tell me if you think if you agree or not. But I think, you know, at the beginning, I think it's important for founders to be involved. But over time, you know, the community obviously should, in the spirit of Web3 and decentralization, the community, the power, the voice should obviously, you know, become, um, should spread between all the different members. But yeah, it can be hard, I think, for founders early on when they first, you know, have a discord and they've got notifications on for every message and they're trying to answer everything. It can be a bit nuts. And some founders, 
don't really engage at all. Um, so yeah, wondering where you think the balance is for like early stage founders. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like the same. Honestly, that's the same in like Web2. It's like you always hear stories, you know, of VC saying, you know, the best founders are the ones who go and, you know, they spend all their 80% of their time speaking to customers and, you know, finding out like what their problems are. And I, and I think it's true, you know, in, in this space as well, if you were to go through the top 50 projects, I would say most of them, you know, the founders are kind of public figures and they're kind of known. Mm-hmm. And they've been active, like if they're maybe not as active anymore because they're too big, but they've been active or they're active on Twitter or something. So I do think you kind of have to build up that relationship with people in the beginning and, and you know, it's important to do that. However, I also don't think it's the only way, right? And one way to supplement that quite quickly is essentially having um, a very good sort of head of community. Uh, which is one of the hardest positions to hire in the whole space, right? There's just not that many people out there who really can do it on, on, a, on a high level. Uh, there's a lot of community managers, but the really, really good ones are in short supply or they're very expensive, but they can quickly sort of supplant founders. So if you have someone who just is super active and, you know, one of the best right now, he's not a community manager as such, he is sort of technically a founder, but he's not the CEO, right? Which I think is actually quite important is, um, uh, Frank from D Gods, like the big NFT project, probably top five. Um, he's technically not the CEO of the company, even though he sort of founded it. Um, and the, the CEO is sort of running all business operations. It's kind of behind the scenes a bit more. But Frank is the person out front and center. So I don't know what he calls himself, his actual title, but in some ways he's also head of community. And if you can find that kind of character who can be there the whole time, like the founders maybe can take a bit of a step back or if it's not really your personality, you know, it's, it's possible. Cool. Super cool. Um, another important thing, I mean, we discuss this a lot when we think about like where the space is going. Um, and we, we discussed it just before, um, we started recording also this like idea of the meta game, uh, which is based on a post from Kobe. Um, that everyone should read. It's on his Substack. So yeah, just quickly, the meta game is like, what's the bigger game that we're playing, and what are the rules of that bigger game, and how does that fit into, you know, the narratives that evolve in the space? Um, so we started to talk about narratives a little bit, and yeah, for early stage founders, I think narratives are super important. Um, so yeah, we'd love to hear how you think early stage founders should approach like building a narrative around their project and how they can communicate that. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's one of the things that more and more people are realizing is important. I think for two to three years, like, well, in the beginning in 2017, 2018, most people ignored this, I, I think as like, or even called it the narrative. They just did something, they did an ICO. And then you know, I think uh, some of the smartest people kind of realize this, maybe 2019, 2020, that there was like narratives, you know, narratives mostly being like trends, so like key trends and like the meta game being like, what's the current trend or what's the upcoming trend? And um, yeah, I think now a lot of founders do realize, okay, like there's, there's trends and you kind of have to play into that. Um, if you're building something that's kind of old news now, or you don't fit into a trend. Um, so an example, right? And, and this isn't um, this isn't a diss at all, but there was a period uh, actually for two blockchains right, that I can think of 
there was a very big polka dot period, right? Which was, I think the sort of second half of 2020, it was like the end of, I think the polka dot, the dot token was released in the second half of 2020, things went crazy. And for a while, every project had pink branding and was called polka something, right? And there was this huge, that was definitely the trend at that point in time. So if you were launching a project, like in that moment, every project wanted to be called poker something and have pink branding. And loads of those projects are still around. Um, then I think, you know, some point soon after that, like it was sort of six months later, there was Solana. So every project came out, it had this blue, purpley, green Solana gradient colors, and it was called Sol something. Um, and there was a big Solana trend, right? And, and that's not as big right now. It's not that it won't come back, but like, you know, every, every, especially ecosystems have their phases or different kind of things. There was also DeFi 2.0 or yield farming was before that. It was like the first part, you know, so yield farming or fair launches was a big trend, right? So you've got to, you can't always, you can't always predict the next trend. Um, it's very hard to say what they're going to be, but it is very clear right now that there's, there's probably five to 10 trends, you and me could name that are probably going to happen at some point in the next two to three years. When they happen and how it all happens, we don't really know. Um, so as a founder, you can either choose, right? Like, so to give it right now, you could choose to call yourself poker, blah, 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 and launching the Polkadot ecosystem. Or, you know, that's been the hype of the last month or so, the Arbitrum side of things, and call yourself Arb something, right? And anyone who's listening to this can probably guess which of them is, is, is more on trend right now. Um, and which is maybe the smart move. So I do think founders, you know, they have to be thinking about that. Like, you know, you might prefer another technology solution. You might prefer lots of different things about, you know, a different ecosystem, but you've also got to be thinking about a trend that's coming up and it's much better to build for the next trend than the trend that's already happened, you know? And, and that's, mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, there can be some overlap. There could just be a small tweak, but um, otherwise, yeah, you might be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, projects can also maneuver, you know, based on narratives to find like product market fit, um, or at least to find more demand for their solution uh, within the market. There've been some projects which have focused on privacy and then moved to like new, when new technologies have evolved, um, they might adopt those new technologies uh, like ZK, uh, applications are becoming very popular. A lot of those founders previously worked on different types of privacy tech with their startups. Um, and yeah, I think that's one thing actually, I think that is really important for founders is that they must have some understanding of like the widest meta in the space to be successful. It's like the best founders seem to have this, like they've got this like peripheral vision of like what's going on. I, think I remember Kane from Synthetics wrote a tweet thread or an article about like web three we're trying new things all the time and we're there are so many failed experiments but every time we're doing it like we're improving like the failed experiments are getting better and better um and you can kind of look back and you can see all of that and it's really obvious so like, there's no point launching something that's you know from an experiment that was done six months ago and failed like yeah you've got all the the current um yeah, everything that's current is and um, what's going to happen next is where you should be looking. And um, that's how you should be thinking about building.
Yeah, and, and, and to comment on that, so there's what there's one idea really that's the same idea, and here's three different iterations of it over the last five years. So iteration one is it was maybe an um, an ICO in 2017 or 18 for a social network type you know play, and the idea is that lots of people would join it, and there would be a token behind everything, and people could earn those tokens, and then they would spend them in shops. You know, there would it would be like a loyalty point scheme. And they would go around spending these tokens, um, you know, buying their Starbucks or buying like, I don't know, restaurant food or whatever, right? So that was stuff we saw a lot in 2017, 2018. I could probably dig out some names. All of them failed, right? And it didn't work at all. Uh, they were some of like the biggest, you know, fails really at that time, but they raised a lot of money. Second iteration in we've seen over the last couple of years has been um, incorporating NFTs into that. So, you know, people earn NFTs and those NFTs can be used to redeem certain things. Um, but, you know, the, the idea is essentially a social network. Um, but now people have incorporated NFTs and maybe brought in creators or brands or whatever. And, and brands have been more interested in that because they kind of have understood the NFT. So these, there's quite a lot of these types of projects right now. Some have failed, but some of them are still going and, you know, they, they've raised money and they're like working their way through it and, you know, maybe they find a path through. The third iteration of that is what we're starting to see in decentralized social. So it's like, it's a social media thing and it could have a lot of elements of the, the first example I gave, but now um, all of the data is collected on chain. It sort of removes big tech from the equation or big social media platforms. You own your data. Um, and then people are building sort of different front ends and different experiences. So this is still pretty early. You know, you have Lens and Farcaster and you know, a bunch of other stuff. Um, but that's like the same idea that we've now seen like a third, to some extent the same idea, but like the slight, you know, it's got slightly different feature set or it's using slightly different um, aspect. And I actually think this third iteration of this, we will actually see some success stories. Like we'll see, we've already got like examples of, you know, Lens probably has millions, a few million users, or maybe a million users already, I would guess. I think, yeah. I think, actually, they don't have that many users, maybe like 400,000, but the engagement's crazy high because they made it really hard to get a profile. Yeah. Maybe they're up to a million. Well, I, yeah, exactly. I, I think cool. it's not giant. You know, it's definitely not going to take down Twitter just yet, but at the same time, it, it, it does have a critical mass. Like, it definitely has some kind mm -hmm. of functionality that could Absolutely. So I think it's, a, you know, it doesn't mean that like Absolutely. past ideas are bad, but it's the, you know, you've got to kind of get it. You've got to catch it at the right time. And timing is, you know, one of the main things. So, yeah. Timing is extremely important in this space. That's for sure. Um, so next question, which channels should early stage founders focus on? Um, what marketing channels? It's going to depend a bit on your project, to be honest. But the most important thing that I see uh, time and time again is when I uh, speak to early stage projects, you go on the website. It's the same with any type of company, same as Web2 companies. You go on the website and they have a footer and it has six different social media profiles. You know, it has a medium, it has a, a Twitter, an Instagram, a Snapchat, an email button and all this stuff. So um, I didn't actually, someone else told me this in the past and I just re repeat this a lot, but I think it's very good, um, is that focus on one or two channels um, in the beginning and really nail them, right? Until your content, until your 
scaling that um, and they're, you're very, very happy with it and you think, you know, they're doing well, don't even look at a third channel or, you know, beyond that. And the problem that, you know, you see is you end up with like six channels, three of them are complete ghost towns, three, the other three you're struggling to kind of keep up um, and none of them are really like, you know, optimized. So yeah, focus on one or two channels. Those one or two channels in crypto are generally wherever you decide to build your community, which right now the default is generally Discord um, and probably Twitter. And beyond that, like unless you really, you know, if you're doing a corporate blockchain type play, then maybe you want to do LinkedIn. Um, if you're doing something that's tagging creators or gamers or whatever, then maybe you want to look at Twitch or you want to look at Instagram, uh, depending. But generally speaking, Discord and Twitter are just the simplest place. And I think that could change in the next couple of years. Like Twitter is changing quite a lot, obviously, with the Elon purchase and Discord. People find it frustrating. Um, and, you know, we've seen when I started in 2017, a lot of projects had Slack channels or Slack groups that moved quickly to Telegram. And then those Telegram groups have moved to Discord. And now I feel like there could be room for something else, but we haven't found it yet. So, yeah. Maybe it's going to be Lens. Maybe it's going to be Web3 Social. That'd be cool. Yep. That'd be super cool. Um, okay, next question. So this this is something that we, we hear a lot, right? It's founders, projects come to us um, when they're thinking about launching a token. So maybe their product is working, they have some early users, or maybe they don't, and they're thinking of launching a token. Um, yeah, what, what, how, how should founders think about, firstly, how should founders think about launching a token? And then what should be like their general approach to actually building a campaign around launching a token? Um, yeah, so to touch on um, how should how should founders think about launching a token? So things change quite a lot on that front as well. So we've also seen many iterations of like um, how to launch a token. So 2017 was ICOs. You know, the, the cool thing about ICOs, which I still think is cool now, is that they were a bit more democratic and, you know, more people could get involved. But then, you know, it became quite clear that, you know, maybe they are closer to financial assets and that became heavily regulated. So on that side, things changed. Then we've had IEOs and then we've had IDOs, so initial exchange offerings, initial decentralized exchange offerings. Um, right now, the big trend is airdrops. Um, so a lot of big projects doing airdrops really based on activity and people contributing to a community or to mm -hmm. a product. Um, and then I think, you know, we're going to see, so the airdrop thing as well, very hot right now, I think will be a trend for the rest of this year, but it's going to also evolve and maybe change a bit and we might see different kinds of uh, mechanisms. So why do, why do people do any of these uh, types of initiatives at all? It's generally because if you are a founder, you need to kind of think like, how do I incentivize my community to be involved? Right. So that's what is the, is the first question is, okay, how can I build a community and, you know, beyond just like marketing and, you know, creating a place for people to feel at home, you also want to incentivize them. And that's why a lot of the big projects have done well is that people have been incentivized early and you know, a lot of people have benefited and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so user founder need to think about that and you might have VC investors or you might have private investors who've invested, um, and they're obviously incentivized, but if you cannot capture 
a wider community than just your investors, um, potentially even at launch, there's a very high chance you're going to fail. And we saw a lot of companies in over the last couple of years, like quite a few who said, no, we're not going to do a public sale or we're not going to, we're not going to distribute any tokens to our community through an airdrop or anything. And to be honest, I can't think of many of them that are still really around or doing well that well. Like most of those companies who made that call probably are not doing well right now, I would guess. Then on the, the opposite end, we have companies like Uniswap who did like probably the biggest and most famous airdrop um, maybe ever. And Uniswap did really well. You know, everybody kind of was already using the product, but then at the same time, um, everybody then had sort of, in a way, a stake, you know, and it's not exactly like that, but they they felt like they were part of it and they were incentivized, you know, to help the whole organization grow or the product grow. Um, so I think founders need to think, okay, how, what is the, the way I can get the, the biggest amount of distribution and then also keep people incentivized to sort of like be involved long-term, not just get tokens and then sell them, which is what a lot of people do. And there isn't really a... There isn't really one answer to that. Um, but generally, the trend that's happened over a period of time is that you used to be able to just buy tokens and do what you want with them. And now the trend is a bit more projects look at like, okay, who has contributed to my community? Like who's contributed to my product? Like who's actually helped us get to this stage? And how can we keep those people involved? Because they've already, you know, contributed so far. And that's a general wider just thought okay get people in, interested and in, in doing things and then reward them for that that work they have done and try and do it on the biggest scale possible i think awesome super super great answer so quickly qu a couple quick five questions um can you give me three companies that you think do great marketing they don't have to be companies we've worked with Three crypto companies, yeah? Yeah, three crypto companies. I think Ethereum does great marketing, even though uh, they probably don't realize it. Um, but I think they do great marketing by not doing any marketing. And that appeals to developers and it appeals to purists in a way. You know, Vitalik is probably one of the best marketers in this space, but he doesn't try to be. And people love him for that. So I think they're, they're pure, they're, you know, at least by most people's, you know, standards. Ethereum's kind of pure in like the way they behave. So that that's a, a very difficult start to replicate. Um, let's think, who else does great marketing? Um, I think quite a few of the VCs um, are starting to do great marketing um, and we're seeing that more and more. So in a way, the VC game is as, is as competitive as the token game now or just like crypto projects themselves. You know, they have projects, uh, sorry, VCs have to try and get in there on the best deals. And there's, there's too much money, right? There's enough money to go around. So you are seeing more and more of them publishing their own research. Um, you know, doing events is a big one. And you see a lot of like big VCs doing events now, at wider crypto conferences. Um, and then also doing smaller like initiatives, like cool, memeable things um, that, you know, maybe people can buy into. So a good example right now um, of one recently is like 1KX, like one of the VC funds. You know, their new website is 
one of the most fun websites in the whole space. The question you could ask yourself is why have they done that? And they've done that because they enjoy it, but they've also done it because any founder looking at that will think, yeah, this is cool. Like every single person looking at it will think this is cool. And that, that sort of makes you want to work with that VC. You know that they understand, you know, the memes of the space, like stuff going on. Um, and it, it feels way more on brand than, you know, the average VC website is kind of boring. So I think VCs, uh, yeah, 1KX we've named, but, you know, there's probably some other good ones. And finally, um, I think some of the biggest NFT communities have done some of the best marketing out there. But the problem is the product is lacking. So they've found community market fit and they've got these big communities, but now we're starting to see a lot of that unravel with some of the sort of mid-tier communities is that they haven't followed up with utility and product. So that's, yeah, it's a bit of a shame really. Um, and a few of them will, and most of them seem to not be doing it. So yeah, just trying to name three answers to this question that don't really, aren't really what we work on because otherwise I feel it's biased. Um, but yeah, that's the, nice. the three types of organizations. That's awesome. Thank you so much. So yeah, thank you everyone for listening in. You can follow Jake on Twitter. Um, Jake, what's your Twitter? It's at Jake, Jake underscore S-T-O-C-T. Perfect. And also you can follow Hype on Twitter at Hype Partners. Thank you so much. Thanks, James. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Growing Web 3. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at Hype Partners forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening again and be sure to hit subscribe to listen to new episodes first. Growing Web3 is brought to you by Hype Partners, the leading community management and marketing agency for Web3 organizations. Hype is a global agency of 120 marketers committed to supercharging Web3 ecosystems. Go to www.hype.partners to learn more.